Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 21? Genesis chapter 21. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Word with you, go ahead and raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. So we're going to be in Genesis 21, but if you would, turn back to chapter 16. Because I'm going to preach 16, 17, 18, 19, then. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. As a wife. Keep that in the back of your head. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and Sure, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your prayer. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his and against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, his hand. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Leheo Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Berenth. Hagar bore Abram a son, and called, and Abram called the name of his son, and Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 66 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Chapter 21. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, help us to be good, clear-thinking, careful students of this precious word you preserve. Father, what it is that you have for us this morning from this text. We love you, Lord. We thank you that we have this opportunity to come to you, Lord. I pray for your blessing, and Father, for your help for me to work through this passage for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this history that Hagar has with Sarai is a pretty sad history, really. 
Sariite is not very patient with the fact of how long it's taking God. Not only that, but she has great questions, second-guessing of her own capability. She hasn't been able to bear children this entire time. And now, here she is going, in chapter 16 anyways, obviously I'm not the one that the Lord will use to bring this child about. Perhaps he'll use my maidservant. So, I think what I'll do, rather, is instead of being Abraham's wife and trusting God in this, I will, I will supersede him, and I will bring this woman to my husband, and then the child will come through her. Notice how she says, I will have children through her, is the concept. And then as soon as the child is born, and there, or as soon as she's pregnant, and Abraham takes her, she is looked upon with contempt, and all of a sudden Sarai starts to get frustrated and angry, and now she says, I want her gone. Kick her out. You know, after 21 is where she was born. <coughs> This whole concept, this relationship, the friction between Sarai and Hagar always brings sadness to me because I don't see any fault in Hagar in this, in this whole thing. And I am always curious as to just what went through the mind of this woman as she is a simply, from what we can gather from the text, a faithful maidservant and then she says, you, I want you to be the one to give a child to Abram and to myself. And it got so bad that she was persecuting, Sarah was persecuting Hagar to, to such a point, Hagar made a decision to flee into the wilderness back in chapter 16, to leave, which, here's a pregnant woman who was heading into the wilderness. Most likely she did not have a thought that, I'm sure I'll be fine. Which makes you wonder, so what kind of pressure, what kind of persecution was this woman receiving to the point that she would say, I'll flee? But God in his grace comes and meets Hagar and tells her to return, which she does, and she walks in obedience, and eventually has a son, and they name his son Ishmael. Well, now fast forward many years, and as we covered last week, we saw Isaac has been born, the child of promise. The one who Abraham's offspring will be named after. We'll see the line of Christ from this man, this, this boy child. But it's interesting to me that God, in his divine sovereignty, had a desire to let us know some of the happenings with him. So chapter 21, verse 8. And the child grew, this is in reference to Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. The title of this first point is A Jealous Demand, just so that way you have that in the back of your mind. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abram, Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now there's all kinds of problems with what she's saying here, is there not? Cast out this slave woman. Well, did you notice in chapter 16, I'm going to give you my maidservant to be your what? Wife. And she'll have children for us. Well, you can, you can detect some of the animosity in this woman's mind and heart as she speaks about this lady. This slave woman and her son. 
Please notice, not Abram's son, not Sarah's son. That's her son. I can't help but wonder if there's shame in this. I can't help but wonder if there is uh, a, an embarrassment in this for her because, as we saw back in chapter 16, this was Sarah's idea. Let me give you my maidservant. You can sleep with her, and then you can have a child by her, and that can be the child of promise. Abraham went along with it, and now here's this child who is not the child of promise, and here's this child who is the child of promise. How awkward. And Hagar hasn't gone anywhere. She came back. She's been around this whole time, all these years. Most commentators believe that Ishmael is probably a teenager. And most believe that, uh, and it makes sense, customarily at the time this was written, uh, Isaac is probably around three years old when he's weaned. And so she comes to him with this jealous demand. Isaac has been weaned, and now there's going to be a feast, a party. Let's get together and celebrate. And apparently what happens is Sarah catches Ishmael looking at him and mocking him somehow. This word that's simply laughter, what, what's being communicated there is there's a mocking of Isaac by Ishmael. I don't know what exactly was in the mind of Ishmael. I can start to wonder a little bit. I was a teenager once. And as you start to think about it, you could look at this child and say, so this is the child of promise, huh? This little baby. There, you know, and, and start to maybe feel some <coughs> sibling rivalry. <coughs> After all, one is the child of promise and you're not. You're actually the mistake that we made many years ago, Ishmael. I don't know exactly what was in the mind and heart of Ishmael as he was looking and laughing and, and mocking Isaac. But it was enough to catch a mom's attention, and by the way, a mom who was already bent towards being upset with them, as she caught that laughter and decided, they've got to go. I want them to leave. And so she comes and says, now I want you to take this baby, this, this teenager rather, and I want you to take his mom, who's simply a slave, and I want you to get him out of here. Now, I, I have no way in my mind that I could configure to say that Sarah's motives are any, anything good or pure in this passage. I think Sarah, out of jealousy and out of some sort of animosity and probably a bit of shame because it was a sinful act of impatience to say, let's not wait upon the Lord. Rather, let's have it be this woman. All of that piled together with a teenager that happens to be laughing and probably in a mocking way brings her to a boiling point and she tells Abraham, get rid of him. Please notice in the passage, you guys, it's not a request. <clears throat> Verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. That is so important. When did God ever tell Sarah and Abraham that Ishmael would be co-heir with Isaac? Where did God ever say that? Now, I think it's an inference you could, show, you could point that Sarah probably thought that. That was the game plan. But the Lord never said that. So I, it causes me to scratch my head just a little bit and wonder... So why, why is she still thinking that where God has made it very clear, very apparent, Isaac is the child of promise that would come through Abraham and come through Sarah? 
But nonetheless, I don't want him here. Take the slave woman, take the child, remove them. He will not be co-heir with Isaac, my son. And as I think about Abraham, and I think about this very difficult decision that's been given to him, I can't help but think of the nervousness, the sadness, because Ishmael is his son. He's, to Sarah, it's like, whatever, I, I, you know, he's, the, he's just a, um, a picture of a mistake to her. But to Abraham, this is my son. This is my blood relative. Yes, through Hagar, but I still love him. <coughs> Guys, I can't help but think that what's happening here to some level is God is still preparing Abraham, growing his faith. Because in the next chapter, we're going to see God come and say, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him unto me. Well, here he, we're going to be told and see that the Lord comes to Abraham and tells him, I want you to remove this child as well. I'm always curious, if God wouldn't have come to Abraham and told him to do what Sarah told him to do, if he would have done it. Would he have done it on the word of Sarah? Or no? Judging by what I've seen up to this point, probably. But the Lord doesn't leave him hanging. Look, look here. He's directed by God not by Sarah. Verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But he doesn't leave him there. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. It is so kind when the Lord comes and brings clarity like that. Instead of just, just Sarah saying, I want you to take him, I want you to get him out of here. God comes in his grace and says, I want you to do exactly what Sarah has said to do. Now really quick, some theology is needed. Is God condoning perhaps the jealous motive in Sarah? My opinion, no. I don't think the Lord is saying Sarah's motives are pure here. I think what God is doing here is God has a divine plan. And at times, the selfish motives, the evil in the hearts of people, if they work in line with God's ultimate game plan. I'll get more to that after a bit. And so the Lord comes to Abram and he says, follow what she says, and I want you to send them away. <clears throat> But did you notice the promise that he lays out? He says, and I will make a nation of this child, which is a promise that this child will be saved. I'll care for him. I don't know about you, but I don't trust a lot of people with my kids. You probably haven't, and you probably don't. It has nothing to do with other people. It has to do with my concern and my love for my children. So I don't trust a lot of people with my kids. I'm growing to trust God with my kids. On paper, I know theologically that the Lord is utterly trustworthy with my children. <clears throat> and I can trust him to do the right thing with my children. I'm growing in this. But in a very real way, guys, here what's happening is God is saying, Abram, 
Let them go. I will care for them. I will make a great nation from them. I think that that would have done some massive relief for Abraham. I remember reading years ago a Puritan who wrote a letter to a woman who had lost one of her children. And he said, your child is now present with the Lord as if your child was visiting one of your dearest, most trusted friends. And your child is in the most best care that they could ever be. That's not always a relief, depending on the moment you say that. But beloved, biblically speaking, it is. Absolutely And So in this passage, I think Abraham had a massive sense of, okay, I don't trust Sarah, but I do trust God. And so I will. I'll send them out. I don't think this was an easy act of obedience. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that it nonetheless was an act of obedience that was based on God's word, not Sarah. Now, if you, you drop down with me, verse 14, once again, there's an early riser. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, we'll see this in chapter 22, this rising early in the morning. That is always stuck in my head, thinking of this man. No, it wasn't just because he was an early riser. It's because of what's supposed to take place that next day. I remember as a kid getting ready to go hunting with my dad and my uncle, and somehow I woke up at 3 a.m. because I was so excited to get to go do that, to be with them. Because I went to bed that night and thinking, oh, I hope I don't oversleep, hope I don't oversleep, and I get up four hours earlier than I was supposed to. I think Abraham had on his mind, this is going to be a very difficult day because this woman who I've taken as a wife and this child who is my child for at least up to his teenage years, I am now going to send out into the wilderness without my protection, without my care. And so he gets up early that morning, he prepares the provisions, he brings them together and says, go. I can't help but think that there's tears coming down the man's face. I wonder if, if this woman pleaded, please don't do this. I have nobody to protect me. Why would you do this? You're the one who gave me this child. You're the individual who decided this. I was just plucked out of your servants to serve in this way. And now you're kicking me out all by myself with this child. Talk about a desperate situation where she is in absolute need of somebody to rescue her. But Abraham didn't budge. And again, beloved, please don't miss this, because I want to be very careful with Abraham here. Because of the sermon I did last Sunday about him growing in faith, and then the New Testament's testimony that he was a man who did not waver, but he grew in faith. I believe that the reason Abraham is comfortable here, comfortable, quote-unquote, to send them out, has everything to do with God's word. 
That Almighty God is the one who has said, I want you to do this now. Act in obedience. There are times where God will lay something heavy in our lives, and we know that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing to walk in obedience. But this is very, very trying. This is so difficult for me to do. But nonetheless, he sends her out. And now we see this woman and this boy in the wilderness by themselves with a few provisions. Drop down with me to verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Now, again, it's, it's debatable just what the age is of Ishmael. Perhaps she put him there, and he's, he is 13 years old, 12 years old. She put him there because of weakness, because he is exhausted, because of the dehydration. It came to a point where she had to literally help him along and set him under this bush. I don't know. Trying to figure out the white spaces as best I can. But the water's gone, they're in the desert, they're dehydrated, and she puts the child under a bush. Why under a bush? What's going on? Verse 16 then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off. Why? About the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. I, I don't have words to, to elevate the, the height of emotion in this scene. You see how profoundly strong the emotion is in this moment with this woman. As there she is, weeping and pleading with the Lord, she's taken her boy, her only son that we know of, and put him under the bush. She goes about a bow shot away, so that way I can plug my ears. I don't have to hear him die. I don't have to hear him suffer. Who knows if he's crying for mom. I don't want to be involved in this. She recognizes her lot in life so well here. To the point that she starts pleading for grace. And God heard the voice of the boy. If you're comfy underlining in your Bible, that would be worthy of a little bit of underlining. Because the fact is, it's not that God, his hearing wasn't functioning too well earlier. The Lord knows exactly what he's doing. He could have stopped this at any moment. And he has allowed it to go to this point until it says he heard the voice of the Lord. Meaning the Lord is about to give his power and attention to them. The angel of the Lord, the angel of God, rather, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fear not. For God's heard the voice of the boy where he is. <coughs> up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a same promise he made to Abram, now he's letting her in on this. And I, I, I know you guys, there are a myriad of questions that all of us would have in this whole scenario. Why this long, Lord? Why this suffering, Lord? Why did you have them go out, Lord? Why all of those whys? 
There's a ton of whys in this life, is there not? It's interesting how I, in my mind and heart, know for a fact I can absolutely trust the Lord when my whys are answered. But it is so hard at times when I have so many whys. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Haran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God, in his grace, came to this woman who was absolutely desperate for him, absolutely desperate for his rescue. Abraham wasn't there to rescue her. Sarah wasn't there to rescue her. There is no other husband there to rescue her. She couldn't rescue her own son. God in his grace comes and rushes to the rescue of Hagar. Now we're told that the child grows, <laughs> he gets armed, and becomes very, very good with the bow, takes a wife, and the nation that will be coming from this man will be consistently up and against the nation that will come from the other son. And throughout history, we will see a massive amount of controversy through these years. So, Dan, how do you apply that? Well, there's a lot of different points of application that you could draw from this passage. I want to just give a couple, okay? Number one, there are serious consequences to our actions in this life. It is an absolute lie if you were to tell somebody, come to Christ today and absolutely everything will fall into place place, and there will be no consequences to the, from the sin you've done up to this point. That's not true. It is, unfortunately, a false gospel that at times is preached. If you come to Jesus, we're going to make everything easy for you. That's not true. Everybody will forgive you as soon as you come to Christ. Have his forgiveness, and then all the people around you will forgive you. That's not true. Guys, we have to be more realistic when we come and share the truth of the gospel with a watching world, with a dead, fallen world. And to present it in such a way that there's this magic that will take place instantly after, say, 35, 40 years of living is a lie. There are consequences in this life to the decisions that are made, both to the unsaved and to the saved. Sarah, yes, has Isaac. As she's holding the child of promise, she's telling Abraham, get rid of this mistake we made. And so let us, let us be careful when we're talking with other people. There is a need for wisdom. How we live our lives, the decisions we make, because some of the consequences are so, they have so much attached to them. Point two has to be attached to point one. Even in that, God is still sovereignly at work in the consequences of those things. Nothing is wasted. The Lord doesn't waste anything. The scripture tells us 
in Romans 8, 28, that he is working all things, not just the good things, not just some things, not the things done prior to Christ or after you came to Christ. The scripture says God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, those who deny Christ, everything's working together, ultimately leading to their damnation. But to those of us who are called by him, love him, things are working together for good. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Wait a minute, Dan, time out a second. Hold on. So you're telling me even mistakes I make can be used by God to accomplish a good purpose. Absolutely. Are there consequences to it? Yes. Is it sin? Yes. Is it out of God's control to accomplish something great from? No. How could I say that? Well, let me just remind you. You and I are going to enter into paradise because a group of bloodthirsty people went and took an innocent man and crucified him. I'm not justifying their act. I think it was sinful and wrong. But even in their wrongdoing, God had a good purpose in it. You remember Joseph after all of the craziness? We'll get there in six or seven years. But remember with Joseph as he went through everything with his brothers, as they're, they're, he comes and tells them the dream. They're angry little brothers, so they throw him in a pit, bring him back out of the pit, throw him into slavery. He's arrested. He, he's accused by Potiphar's uh, wife. All these terrible things. And then finally he's got his brothers, right? This is a good Western. You finally get the bad guys, and you're going to get your revenge at the end. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If, if there's not a place in your theological constructs for both, I just encourage you, go back to the scripture. Look how God powerfully, sovereignly uses the actions of sinful men to accomplish his good purpose ultimately. And so as I look at this passage, everything in me is angry at Sarah. Everything in me, my heart feels bad for Hagar. But then I go, even in this, our sovereign king is in control. He has a plan. He will be accomplishing a good purpose ultimately in this. This is why anytime from this world somebody comes and says, so is God... In charge, or is he good? Because he can't be bold. I have no reason to sit and debate with them because I absolutely believe he's bold. God is sovereign over all things, working all things according to the counsel of his will, and he's good. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is filled with sin and gross stuff and gross people. But even in that fallen world, our God is still acting, still accomplishing a good end. And so, beloved, where does that settle down once you get it to the base? I think what that comes down to is you and I, even in the darkest of days, must step back and remember that our God's in control. 
This is probably one of, if not the darkest day of Hagar's life. And the king of the universe came to her rescue and sovereignly protected her. If you would have come to her at the moment that she placed Ishmael under the bush and walked away, you would have said, hey, relax, God's going to do a great thing here. He's going to make a nation out of your son over there who's dying. She would have said, you get out of my face, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And yet that's exactly what the Lord did. Is it possible, on our darkest day, in this life, God is accomplishing one of the greatest goods in that moment? Good for us and good according to Him. I think one of the darkest days ever in the life of Mary was to watch her son I, I am so grateful to God for that day. And you know what? So is Mary. Because her redemption was purchased in that moment. Simultaneously, her salvation and her hardest, darkest day happened at the exact moment of the crucifixion. That's why I get really unnerved when I hear people start saying, God had nothing to do He's nowhere to be found. This is purely man's doing. Number one, utterly unbiblical. Number two, talk about despair. God has nothing to do with this. He's in no way involved. He's in no way working this. What a denial of the word. So, beloved, I pray that as you come to the table with me this morning, just the contemplation of this the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God, in the moment of that dark, dark hour, was completely and absolutely in control of the moment. There was nothing out of God's control in the moment of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was sovereignly there at work. Let me, let me pray. Our Father,